Let me ask you this as we get started. When, when was the last time that you found yourself surprised by someone? Now, here's what I mean. Let me define that. I don't mean the last time someone surprised you with a gift or the last time someone surprised you when they hid behind a door and jumped out at you when you turned the corner. What I mean is when was the last time you were surprised by someone in the way that happens when you think you've got somebody figured out? When you know how they're going to react in a particular situation, how they're going to respond in a particular circumstance, and you witness them respond in a way contrary to your long-standing expectation of them. You and I have a tremendous capacity to feel like we have the ability to figure people out. We know what they're going to do. We know how they're going to respond. We know, given any circumstance, what to expect from them. And here's the thing, to greater degrees of awareness, we all do this. And what happens is when we feel like we've got somebody figured out, we place them neatly in a box somewhere in our mind and in our heart. And everything about that person is supposed to operate in that box. That box contains all of our expectations for how they behave, how they talk, how they respond to various things. And if you've been in a relationship with anyone, as a friend, as, as family, as, 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 as partners in marriage, you know that after any given amount of time, people ultimately don't always respond and act in the way that you would expect. And if you try to keep people in the boxes that you put them in and place them in, in your mind and heart, in the long run, it's going to be detrimental for your relationship. Isn't it right? The human dynamic always finds a way out. Boxing people into these kind of expectations, it's unhealthy for relationships. And it's particularly unhealthy for our relationship with God. Again, we're never going to say it, we're never going to use the words, but if we were to sit down and talk about it and if someone could tease it out, you and I each have this thing within us that wants to try to figure out the patterns and the tendencies, how God is supposed to react here, what God is supposed to do here, how God is supposed to respond to this situation, what God will do here and how God will accomplish it there. We like to try to figure out how that's going to happen and then what we do, we don't ever admit it, we don't even use the words for it, but we find a nice tidy box that we put him in. And in our hearts and, and in our minds, we have this particular expectation of what he's going to do, how he's going to do it, and how he can and should accomplish whatever it is we think he's going to do and how he's going to do it. It, it works itself out in, in churches. Let me give you an example of how this can happen. When a church, when a, when a people begin to build a box of expectation for God and then try to neatly put him in it. You can find a, a church or, or a people in a city like Richmond that look around and, and recognize all the varied layers and nuances and, and spaces where restoration needs to be had, where people's hearts need to be restored by the grace of God, where, where systems and structures and patterns of living that have been decades and generations long in this city need to taste the restoring grace of God. And we can look around and, and recognize all of that. And then this box that we've built here that we found a way to, to try to put God in says that if any real gospel transformation is going to take place, any real restoration in this city is going to actually happen, it's going to happen through reformed, complementarian, congregational churches that are led by white men in their 40s or so. That's what happens. 
We tend to set up this expectation based on our standards of appropriateness and correctness and figure that this is the way that God is going to work. This is how God has to work. This is what God is going to do. And we try to put him in this box. The reality of it is God doesn't play in any of our boxes like that. He doesn't fit neatly into our expectations. And when we see God use people that we don't see fitting into our standards of acceptance and expectation in our box, we're absolutely shocked, surprised, taken back by the people that God chooses to use to accomplish for his glory and the good of his people, the things that he wants to accomplish in and through different people. God continues to use people that if we were writing the stories, we would say this is not the most likely person that God would use to see his glory made known and the good of his people accomplished because he doesn't play within our boxes. You see, if you've seen anything through the story of the judges, through this entire series, if there's anything that stands out, it should be this. God will use whoever he so chooses to use to accomplish his purposes for his glory and the good of his people. If you just think for a moment about the cast of characters that we've seen throughout the book of Judges, if you were writing the story of the redemptive history and the work of God amongst his people and you got to write the story, you would never write people like the Judges into the story. Your expectations for who God should use, who God could use to accomplish his purposes for his glory and the good of his people would not be the ones that we've met. The reality of it is if you were writing that story, you wouldn't even write yourself in because you know who you are. You know the truth about yourself. See, when we try to fit God into these expectations and we realize he doesn't fit into those boxes, he is showing us and he's exposing to us that he doesn't operate according to our neat standards of acceptance. And here's the thing, that should be tremendous news for you this morning. As you've seen it play out through the entire book so far, that should be a tremendous encouragement to you. Because there's not a single person sitting in here this morning that is the kind of person that they would write into the story. That's the kind of person that they would expect that God would use to accomplish his purposes for the good of his people and to his glory and to his name. You don't fit it either. If we're really honest with ourselves, we're just as crazy a cast of characters as everybody that we've seen in the book of Judges. But praise God. We've seen it over and over and over again. We sat on it for a long time last week. He remains faithful to his word, faithful to his promise, faithful to his people, and he continues to work in and through our unfaithfulness to accomplish what we could never accomplish for ourselves. So this morning, we are going to try to close the door on Samson. And in some sense, we're gonna close the door on the look at all the individual judges in the book because from here out, you don't get any more individual judges. You get big stories of the sweeping nature of just how sin has brought low God's people Israel. 
Samson's the last individual judge we get. So this morning, we're kind of closing the door, not just on Samson, but on that aspect of the book of Judges. And what I want us to do this morning with the time that we have left is I want us to see not only how unlikely a person Samson was to be used by God, but how just as unlikely we are. I want us to look at Samson's unlikeliness and use it like a mirror to look at our own unlikeliness. But not only that, I want us to see how, because of the grace of God through his son, you and I, I think I can say it theologically, have a greater hope. And not only a greater hope, but even a greater power. How are we like him, the most unlikely to be used, and yet how, by the grace of God, through the work of Christ, do we, do we have a greater hope and even a greater power? So let's start with God using Samson. Why is Samson such an unlikely person to be used by God to accomplish his purposes for his glory and the good of his people? Well, it's not hard if you heard the story last week. Last week, I read through the entire story of Samson, chapters 14, 15, and 16. My tongue is still tired trying to get through all of that. We're not going to read through it again. I can't do that. But what we are going to do is I'm going to try to point out Three big character buckets, so to speak, that define Samson as we met him in his story and see our reflection in those buckets and how they paint a picture of an unlikely person to be used by God. And the first big thing that we see with Samson, and if you remember the stories, you, you'll remember moments and, and episodes popping up here, is that Samson was a man of tremendous compromise. Samson was a man of tremendous compromise in heart. One way you could say it is that Samson, just like the rest of Israel around him, loved the world he found himself in too much. Samson is just a, a reflection of what was going on in the hearts of all of God's people, in the hearts of Israel. It, it zooms in on this man Samson as a case study of what was happening with Israel. And the reality of it is Samson, like the rest of God's people, had fallen in love with the world of the Philistines. And when I say they fell in love with the world of the Philistines, I don't mean they just enjoyed the music. They liked the art. The food was better. The sports were better. The architecture was better. They loved all of those things. What I mean, and language grasps to try to, to get after it, but Samson's heart and the hearts of God's people, all of Israel, had fallen in love with all the things that Philistine culture held out to them. All the hopes, all the passions, all the dreams, all the motivations, all the reasonings behind them. They fell in love with the gods of the Philistines that promised a life that they wanted. They got too comfortable in the world that they lived in and their comfort led them to make compromises. We saw it throughout Samson's story, but it was indicative of everyone. They were so satisfied with the passions and the motives, the values, the, the hopes of the Philistine world that they felt no sense of need or desire to be out from under Philistine oppression. So that Samson, after one of his great feats of strength and goes and hides in a cleft of a rock, the Philistines, if you might remember this, they come down to the men of Judah and they want to find Samson because they want to capture him and take him back. And the men of Judah, 3,000 men of Judah in chapter 15 say, hold on a second, let us go deal with Samson. And they go down to Samson. Do you remember when they came to Samson at the rock? They say, Samson, what are you doing to us? You remember this in chapter 15? Samson, what, what are you doing to us? Don't you know the Philistines are rulers over us? You're ruining what we've got, Samson. It's good here, Samson. 
You're messing everything up. You see, what we've seen throughout the book of Judges is that God calls a particular man or woman, as we saw in Deborah, to be the judge, to begin the deliverance of his people out from under oppression. That judge usually rallies God's people, usually rallies some of the tribes and leads them in battle, empowered by the spirit of God to conquer those enemies. And here in Samson, everyone loves the world so much that not only does the judge not rally God's people against the Philistines, God's people hand him over to the Philistines. Quit messing it up, Samson. Their hearts were given over to everything the world of the Philistines had to offer. And so for just a minute, let it be a mirror. Let it, let it turn back on, onto our own life and to our own heart. You, you have to recognize that every single day and in every single way, with almost every breath you take, the the underlying passions, the underlying values, the underlying motives, the underlying hopes and expectations and dreams of the world around us seek to seduce our hearts away from satisfaction and confidence for all that God is for us and all that God holds out for us through his son. It seeks to draw us away from that. And the more comfortable our hearts get in the world and the promises the world holds out against the promises of God through Christ, the more comfortable we get, the more compromises we're willing to make. The more compromises with what we know to be true, right, good, and beautiful for the glory of God and our best interest and good of the lives of others, we begin to compromise on it because we want this. Our, our hearts desire it. Let me, let me just help you find a, a little barometer, in a sense, of figuring out in your own heart when this compromise is beginning to set in. Let me just give you a little bit of a test that you can get. And this has been a, this has been a hard one for me. I'll just be really honest with you. Here, here's a test. When this kind of comfort is beginning to set in and you need to beware. Are you all familiar with the, the big trend, the fear of missing out? You all read about that? You read all the articles about FOMO and the fear of missing out? You all tweeted it to somebody at some point? Ask yourself this, in the moments that you allow your heart to think about the day that God has promised when Christ is going to return and we're going to see him and be made like him and tears are wiped away and all that God has promised to restore in the new heavens and the new earth becomes a reality and we're going to be with him for all of eternity. All the fullness of his promise comes to pass when the day that Jesus returns, if you allow your heart to think about that day for a moment, do you begin to dread it at all? Does the fear of missing out begin to set in a little bit? Theologically, you tell yourself, you know you're supposed to be longing for that day. Come, Lord Jesus, when it's all going to be made right and you get to be with him in eternity forever. But I just hope it's not this afternoon. There's still something that's being held out to me that I want. I don't want to miss. I know that I'll never want for anything in his presence is fullness of joy. But... Mm. If I could just taste this one first. Friend Samson was a man of tremendous compromise and the compromise grew because his heart became too comfortable, too satisfied in the world around him. Compromise that comes from this kind of comfort, it has incredible consequences on the heart. We, we can't allow one another to become so comfortable 
that we're willing to compromise what we know to be true about who God is for us now and who God has promised to be and all that he holds out for us in his son. Samson and the rest of Israel, they they were people of tremendous compromise, but that compromise kind of gave way and was, was illuminated, you could say, in the other aspect of Samson's life that we see throughout his entire story. Samson was a man of tremendous impulse. He was an impulsive man. Samson was driven in his life. From the moment we pick up his story after the birth narrative in 13, from the moment we meet him in 14 to the end in 16 when he finally dies, Samson was driven throughout his entire life by his impulses, by his desires, by his emotions, by his passions. One writer said that you can best understand Samson as the extreme version of the prodigal son in Jesus' parable in Luke 15. That young man who had to have his inheritance now, who had to have his pleasure now, who did not understand at all the meaning of the term delayed gratification. Samson is the extreme version of that. Do you remember this? From the moment we meet him in 14 on, if he sees it, he gets it, he wants it. Chapter 14, remember he looks at his parents and he says, I have seen a Philistine woman that pleases my eyes. She's right in my eyes. She pleases me. Go get her for me. I see it, I want it, I'm gonna go get it. I want honey. Doesn't matter that the honey's found in the carcass of a dead lion. Doesn't matter that I've been set apart by God from the day that I was born, consecrated a Nazarite, this vow put upon me not to have any contact with dead bodies or dead animals or dead carcasses. Doesn't matter, I see honey, I want it. I'm gonna take it, I'm gonna eat it. I've got desires that I want to have fulfilled. It doesn't matter that a woman is in Philistine. It doesn't matter that she's a prostitute. I'm going to go have my desires fulfilled. I see it. I want it. I'm going to go get it. From the moment we meet Samson in chapter 14 till the end in chapter 16, Samson was driven entirely by his eyes and what to him seemed right in his own eyes, what brought him in his eyes his most pleasure and delight. And so it's ironic in the end in chapter 16 that it's his eyes that he loses because they've been what's driven him his entire life. Friends, very few things will have the kind of consequence on our heart like a willing pursuit of sinful passions and desires. Very few things will bring the kind of destruction to our own hearts like willfully pursuing passions and desires that are sinful, that are contrary to the word of God and the glory of God and the work of God in our lives when we begin to become comfortable in what the world holds out to us, that's that's antagonistic to all that God has promised to us in the gospel and all that God has promised to us through his son and all that God has continued to promise to be for us, when our heart grows comfortable in all that the world holds out to us and those compromises begin to set in, what happens is that tunnel vision begins to close in on our hearts. Have you ever had tunnel vision before? When you get tunnel vision, everything outside of that one little spot gets fuzzy our hearts begin to zero in on what we see, what we want, and we have to go get it. And everything that God is up to in us and around us is out here in this fuzzy thing. We can't see it anymore. Samson, in his compromise and comfort, carnal vision has set in, and he's a man of extreme impulse. I see what I want. I go and get what I want. It doesn't matter if it pleases God or not. And don't just think that this impulse and This drive in Samson was only related to his senses and his passions. 
Go back and read Samson's story this week. If you didn't pick it up when we read it last week, do you realize that every single feat of strength in Samson's life, so to speak, came out of revenge or anger except for the tearing of the lion? When he tore that lion like a young goat, that was the only time that we read in Samson's life in all of his exploits that are in it, chapters 14, 15, and 16 that did not come from anger or revenge. Now you might think, well, wait a minute, what about the very end? He's been captured by the Philistines. He's paraded out into the temple of Dagon. His eyes are gouged out. He's just entertaining them like a circus clown until the moment he cries out to God at the end. Remember, and God strengthens him one more time and he pushes the pillars and down comes the temple. That, that wasn't revenge or anger, was it? It was. Go back sometime this week and read it. Chapter 16, verse 28. Samson, he called upon the Lord and said, Lord God, please remember me and strengthen me only this once that you may be glorified. No. Chapter 16, verse 28, strengthen me only this once that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Completely driven in his entire life by his emotions and by his desires and his impulses. It reminded me this week of Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. It says this, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. That is impulsiveness, if there's any definition of it. Driven by desires, driven by impulses, driven by emotion, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. And what happens to a city that's wall is broken down? It's vulnerable to the enemy. It's vulnerable to attack. It's vulnerable to being taken over. Samson was willing to trade faithfulness to God for a taste of honey. Why? Because it pleased him. It pleased him. And it didn't matter to him whether or not it pleased God. Is like a city with broken down walls. Friends, if you just allow it for a moment to be a mirror, allow it to turn back and reflect back on your own heart, on your own life for a moment, maybe even this week, sit back and, and reread it and think about it and allow it to reflect back for just a moment. When you think about your life and you think about circumstances that you find yourself in this week, when you think about things that you look at and are pleasing to you and decisions that you're going to make and circumstances that you have to respond to, think for a moment, is there a filter at all in your heart and in your mind as you approach these situations that begins to think, is what I am about to do, is what I am wanting and desiring, is what I am choosing and how I'm going to respond to this pleasing to the Lord at all? Or do I just want it? Do I just have to have it? Be it pleasure or be it even revenge? Samson was a man of tremendous compromise and, and impulse, but Underneath all of it, Samson was a man driven by a sense of self-confidence, overly confident in himself. It was Samson's pride that ultimately begins to be the thing that breaks down the walls in his heart and exposes him and makes him the most vulnerable to destruction. 
David Jackman, a pastor in London, he said that perhaps the best way to summarize this is that Samson is a prisoner of his feelings. That's the impulsiveness, the the drive by what he sees and what he wants, be it pleasure, be it revenge, be it anger. He's, He's a slave to his feelings. He's the reverse mirror image of a Pharisee who's a prisoner of his morals. Make sense? Watch this. Jackman says, ironically, the main reason that he's a prisoner of his feelings is the same reason the Pharisees are a prisoner of their morals. It's their own pride. It's their own pride. Samson's sense of self-confidence, Samson's sense of pride This thing that is underlying not only his impulsiveness and his drive, but even his compromise can be seen throughout his entire story from when we meet him in 14 to when we see him die in 16. From the time in 14 when he's unwilling to listen to his parents, unwilling to take their advice, unwilling to get their instruction, all the way down through the story when he's never willing to check his temper at the door at all. No sense of self-control. Samson's sense of self-confidence led him to his own destruction. Do you realize that Samson's pride probably is most clearly seen throughout the story in the fact that ultimately Samson never thought he would ever lose his strength? If you were with us last week, do you remember when we read the story with Samson and Delilah that three times, remember, Samson lied to Delilah when she was trying to get the secret out of him. What's the secret behind this whole thing, Samson? And he lied to her three times. And then finally, the fourth time, she wore him down and and he told her, if you cut my hair, then I'll lose my strength and I'll be like any mere man. Do you realize, do you remember the reason why he told her that was because ultimately in his heart, he didn't think anything would happen. He didn't think anything would change. His entire life, he had made compromises with what he knew to be true about God and about the consecration and the set-apartness that his life was supposed to be lived for God and nothing had happened. So why would anything happen now? My strength must be resident in me. So go ahead, cut my hair. So when she cuts his hair and wakes him up and tells him the Philistines are here to get you, you, you realize, if you didn't remember this last week, you realize when you've never cut your hair for your entire life and it's gotten so long that it's knotted itself into seven primary locks on your head, when you wake up and realize they're gone, you, you know that. Like you're not gonna get up and realize, where'd my hair go? Like, you're not gonna just miss it. You know it's gone. When she woke Samson up, do you remember what he said? He said, Samson, Samson, the, the Philistines are here to get you. Samson said, that's fine. I'll go out just as at every other time and shake myself free. Samson's pride had swelled to the point where he believed that the strength that he had demonstrated throughout his entire life resided within himself and sat within himself so that what had marked him as a sign of his consecration to the Lord, his hair not being cut, meant nothing if it was cut. Nothing will change. You know, Samson, throughout his entire life, if you go back and read what we have of his life in 14, 15, and 16, through all the different feats of strength and all the different ways that God worked through Samson's sin to create the distance between Israel and the Philistines that God needed to create that will one day come through the the conquering of the Philistines through the hand of King David, do you realize that in all the ways that God used Samson to begin to tear apart that entwined nature of Israel and the Philistines, Samson never gave God any glory or credit for what happened? Ever. Chapter 15, after the battle of Jawbone Hill, remember Samson kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey? 
When it was all said and done, Samson had that moment of of weakness and dependence that marks the beginning of his judgeship. You remember that? He realized that he was tired and he was thirsty and he found himself in a position where he could not find a drink for himself. So if God did not provide for Samson what Samson needed, Samson realized he was going to die. So he calls upon God and asks him to provide for him what he needs. Sounds great, right? Even when he prays on the backside of Jawbone Hill, for the Lord to move in a miraculous way to sustain him, Samson prays, and this is what he says in chapter 15, verse 18. You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. So listen, I'm going to die if you don't provide something for me because and if I die right here, I'm gonna die at the hands of the uncircumcised Philistines. So remember what just happened, that without me, it wasn't gonna happen. Remember this great salvation that just occurred? Well, it happened in my hand. So just remember that when you're making your decision as to whether or not you're going to give me water. Never once does Samson at any moment give God any glory for what God accomplishes through his life. Friends, this kind of self-confidence, this kind of pride will steadily erode any true confidence that you or I have in God. You gotta catch this. This kind of self-confidence, this kind of pride is entirely incompatible with faith and confidence in who God is for us through his son. When we talk about faith in God, we're talking about leaning into the truth of who God is for us now, who God has always been for us, and who God promises to be for us, and leaning into the promise of God with all that we are. This kind of confidence in the self and this kind of pride leaning into ourselves in this, it's mutually inconsistent with confidence in God. And what you find is that as you grow more confident in yourself, as your pride and your confidence in yourself takes the place of primary seat in your heart, it steadily erodes any true confidence you have in who God is for you now, who God has always been for you, and who he will be for you. So much so that you can find yourself in different circumstances and situations. And if you were to ask yourself, does my confidence in God and my reliance upon God in this circumstance make any difference at all? If you dare ask yourself that when you look at a different relationship in your life or a different circumstance at your work or a different opportunity that you're facing and you ask yourself, does confidence in God and reliance upon God with my life and how I respond here make any difference at all? And if the answer is no, you can see where the scales have begun to tip in your heart. Because this kind of pride is completely incompatible with true confidence and who God is for us. Proud, impulsive, compromising. Now, honestly, I could be just as easily talking about Samson as I am myself. And the truth is, those are not the kinds of qualities or traits that you and I would expect for someone that God uses for his glory and the good of his people. It doesn't fit in the box. If we're writing the story and we're building the box for who God uses for his glory and the good of his people, proud, compromising, impulsive people don't fit in the box. Praise God. He doesn't play in our box. Praise God. God uses who he wants to use 
to accomplish his purposes and his good. That's tremendous grace. That's tremendous grace. And the better news is because of God's grace, because of God's grace to us through the life, death, and the resurrection of his son, you and I here this morning, we have a greater hope than even those that we've been reading about. And dare I say, and maybe someone will correct me, uh, a greater power. Now, how does that happen? How does that work? Well, there's something you need to understand. In the Old Testament, God's people, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in God's people worked in a different kind and to a different degree than it does now on the backside of the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And here's what I mean. There has never been a person in all of human history who has ever had faith in God and belief upon his word as true, good, right, and beautiful and obeyed it from a whole heart that has not been regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit and the heart of a sinful man, woman, or child, no one hears the word of God as good, right, true, and beautiful and with delight desires to obey it. So all that we read in the Old Testament of people delighting in God's word and obeying God's word happens because as the Old Testament says, God circumcised the ears of his people. He enabled them to hear by the work of his spirit the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of his word and delight in obeying it. But here's the thing. In the Old Testament, God's presence, God's covenant presence with his people resided in the temple and in the tabernacle. That was where God's covenant presence was with his people. And that is where his people would go to deal with sin to deal with issues of forgiveness, to make sacrifice for sin. That's where they would go. That's where his covenant presence was. And you read throughout the book of Judges, you read about it, about King Saul at different times and in different ways, the spirit of God would come upon people in these times. Four times you read about it in Samson. He'd come upon Samson and he would enable God's people to accomplish particular things that God had set about for them to accomplish. But at that particular time, and you can go read about it with Saul, that empowering presence that would come upon them could also leave because God's covenant presence resided in the temple and in the tabernacle. Now, why does that matter? When Jesus showed up on the scene, God's covenant presence dwelled with him amongst his people. John will say he tabernacled with his people The covenant presence of God with his people was in his son. And the place that people would go to deal with sin and forgiveness and sacrifice was no longer the temple and the tabernacle, but the cross. Jesus came and fulfilled the promises that God had made. And the covenant presence of God was now with his son. And the cross was the place where God's people would deal with sin and forgiveness and sacrifice. And Jesus promised in the fulfillment of what God had said in the Old Testament to his people, The Spirit of God will be poured out upon his people. See, God had said in in the Old Testament, especially through the various prophets, I love what he said through Ezekiel, a day is going to come when I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all of my ordinances. This is why the apostle Paul could look at the church in Corinth and say, do you not know that now you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells within you? 
See, on this side of the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus by the grace of God, everyone who places their faith in Jesus as their king and as their redeemer has been given a new heart and the spirit of God resides in that heart. The spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, if you are a follower of Jesus, resides in you. It's not an empowering moment that comes upon and leaves at particular times. It's not a place in which you need to go to deal with. The spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. And so when you read through the New Testament and you read of, of, of men like John writing that this spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, it's alive in you. And in the moments of your darkest depression and your, in the darkest moments and thoughts in your life, when you don't feel like you can find comfort in anyone or anything, that spirit resides in you to be your comforter. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. This spirit is alive and at work in you, John says, actually illuminating for you the truth of what God says. So the truth of who God is becomes beautiful to you. He actually illuminates your ability to understand what God is saying in his word that you might respond to it with joy and obedience. Not only that, John says in John 14 that it's the same spirit alive in you that brings to your mind a remembrance of all that God has said so that when you find yourself in different circumstances and situations, now you can respond with joy based on what you know to be true about what God said. Paul says it's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that's alive and at work dwelling in you that actually preaches assurance to you. Did you know that? It's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead alive in you, Paul tells the church in Rome, that is constantly assuring you that you are indeed a son or a daughter of God. Your source of assurance that you have indeed been adopted by God because of the work of Christ in your place for your sin is being preached to you all the time by the Spirit of God in your heart. Not only that, the same Spirit is convicting you of sin. The same Spirit, Paul says, is a counselor to you. You realize that the Spirit of God, the one we read about from the very beginning hovering over, the same Spirit raising Jesus from the dead, is alive and at work in you to give you wisdom when you need it. Have you ever considered that? This same spirit, Paul says, gives particular abilities, this particular gifts to everyone. And these particular gifts, Paul says, are without repentance. God gifts the work of his creation with different abilities to do different things, to serve people, to teach people, to to lead people, to, to help people. But even greater than that, Paul reminds the church that this spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that is alive by the grace of God and at work in your heart, is at work for your transformation. Paul will say it is producing in you the fruit, the traits, the character of his presence. Paul tells the church in Galatians, Galatians chapter five, that the spirit of God is producing its fruit, the presence of, the the fruit of its presence in you, that in you is being produced love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. But this spirit is at work in you to transform you from the inside out to create in you the reflection of the one who saved you and redeemed you. So much so, I love this, Jesus, in talking about his disciples and about what was going to come through the Spirit taking up residence in their heart. He says in in John 7 that anyone who believes in me, 
anyone who believes in me, which already indicates a work of that Holy Spirit enabling your heart to believe in Jesus, anyone who believes in me will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. John says that Jesus was saying this about the Holy Spirit whom those who believed in him were going to receive. So the next time we have a big storm in town, and you drive over a bridge over the James and you see the water rushing down the James River and you wonder how those trees are even able to stand. How those banks are gonna hold up this surge of water when the James rises too high. Take a moment to think about the fact that because of the grace of God working through the life, death, and resurrection of his son and God's faithfulness to his promise to give you a new heart and to place his spirit in you, in your heart right now is working the spirit of God that's meant to be flowing in you and through you rivers of living water to those around you. Rivers, like the rushing river of the James, flowing in you and through you and from you. The love and joy and peace and patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness of the one who saved you. Friends, we have, we have a greater hope. We have a greater power. And we have the privilege and at the same time the responsibility to help one another as long as it's called today. Encourage one another as long as it's called today. Stir one another up by way of reminder as long as it is called today to not take this hope and this power for granted. See, Paul will tell that same church in Corinth that he reminded about the work of the Holy Spirit in them and through them. He will tell them in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians that it is possible For you and I to be displaying the very gifts that God gives us by his spirit, the very abilities to to serve, the abilities to help, the abilities to teach, the abilities to organize, the abilities to lead, that we can display all of these things to great effect while our internal lives are a train wreck. That it's entirely possible to be displaying the, the gift of God through his Holy Spirit that he's given us and it be used for tremendous good while the fruit of his presence in us, the fruit of love, the fruit of forgiveness isn't there. And so Paul says you need to take care. Take care that you don't disregard the great hope and the great power that God has given you by his spirit. So we get the privilege and we get the responsibility to help one another do that. And and we get to do that by helping one another not fall prey to our own self-justification and our own blindness. See, God has given us each other. We have each other to help us in areas of blindness and self-justification where we confuse in our minds and in our lives the presence of his gifting and the working of his gifting with the reality of fruit in our hearts. So here's what I mean, and this happens to me more than I would ever want to admit. You and I can be doing things that God has gifted us to do, and he's gifted us to do them out of sheer grace. And we can see them bring great effect and fruit and good to the lives of people around us. And in our minds, we can begin to convince ourselves that those things are proof that fruit is being produced in our heart. So we subtly exchange in our minds confidence in what we do for confidence in what God's producing in us. And we need one another to help distinguish that. We need each other to help untangle those knots because it's possible to be operating and doing all these great things and going, why aren't people such good Christians like me? Well, all along, train wreck on the inside. 
And so you and I, we, we get to help one another avoid that kind of justification and avoid that kind of blindness by encouraging one another and helping one another examine our own hearts and appropriate places of trying to distinguish what's happening in our heart. So instead of looking at all the things that we do and all the things that God is using to help benefit other people and going, oh, you're great. Oh, things are fantastic. What we get the privilege of doing is going, well, how is your relationship with the Lord? More specifically, what's your time in God's word and what's your time in prayer like? Because that's a much better barometer than what you're doing. Not just are you reading the Bible and are you praying because those become the same activities we look at and go, oh, everything's great. But is your time in God's word warm? Is it relational? Is it joyful? Is it consistent in your prayer? Are you listening and learning as much as you're talking? What's that like? We get to help one another. Avoid the kind of blindness that confuses activity for real transformation. And I've said it 10,000 times now, so you can see the third thing is he gives us each other. See, Samson was the ultimate loner. Of all the judges that we've read about so far, Samson is the only one that didn't gather anyone around him to accomplish what he was doing. Samson did everything on his own and as we've seen for his own interest. And when we keep ourselves to ourselves, we become most vulnerable and most susceptible to the broken down walls and the invasion of an enemy. We become most susceptible to the kind of blindness and self-justification that you and I both know we're so given to in our lives. So we get the privilege of helping one another. We get the responsibility of encouraging one another. We don't talk about community groups and 3D groups and those kinds of things simply because we have some kind of internal need to tell other people at conferences that a certain amount of people are involved in the different things we do. No, we do that for your good. We talk about it and we, we change it and we move it around and we try to fix it and we try to do whatever we can do to make a better environment for you to know someone, for someone to know you, that they might help you avoid the kind of blindness and self-justification you're prone to, that you might have a greater hope and a greater confidence in what God's done for you and you can see him working through you as you receive the ministry of God through someone else in your life. That's why we do it. It's not for ourselves. It's for you. Friends, you and I, <laughs> because of the grace of God through the work of his son on this side of the cross, I think it's fair to say we have a greater hope, a greater power. And so we might read the story and we might wonder why in the world or how could God use someone like Samson? The, the fact of the matter is, he did he did, and he continues to. The fact that we wonder how God could use someone like that doesn't negate the fact that he does. And that's good news. Because God continues to this day to use the most unlikely people to accomplish by his power what is most glorifying to him and brings the most good to his people. Friends, the story of Samson, the story of the book of Judges, the, the door that we're trying to close, it's ultimately a story of God's faithfulness. That God has worked out all things together for the good of his people, even when they're not aware of it, and even when those that he chooses to work through wander away from him. And he still does the same thing today. He's still just as gracious and just as faithful He's still committed to his promise to work out all things together for the good of his people, even when we're not aware of it. And the beauty of it is that when his final deliverer came, 
When the perfect deliverer came, Jesus has no trace of the waywardness, the unfaithfulness, the pride, the impulsiveness. He has no trace of it like we see in Samson and like we see in ourselves. Which is good news because by the grace of God, through our faith in his son, you and I are given a great hope. By the faithfulness of God and the grace of God, we are given a great power for transformation in this life to the glory of God and for the good of others. And this morning, I'm going to pray for us and and then we're going to have a chance to respond to God. We're going to have a chance to reflect on his word and to continue to pray amongst ourselves. But then we're going to have a chance to remember the work of God and the grace of God bringing this new covenant promise to us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son in our place for our sins. Communion this morning for those who have placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus is a moment to remember that even if we're faithless, Just as Paul told Timothy, God remains faithful for he cannot deny himself and change. And we remember his faithfulness to us through his son this morning. And we are reminded of the power and the encouragement and the hope that he has given us by his spirit. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll have a chance to respond. Father, we thank you this morning. A beautiful morning like this, Lord, that you take time to remind us through your word of our need for you, of just how unlikely we are to be the kind of people that you would use for your glory and the good of other people, yet yet you're so gracious that you would save us, that you would love us, that you would transform us, and even when we're unfaithful you remain faithful to us and you use us for your glory in this place and for the good of your people god let us be encouraged let us be strengthened let us just be overjoyed as we remember this morning your faithfulness to your word and your faithfulness to your people we ask that you would do that this morning in jesus great name amen